Okay, so there is the logo up there. Some of you, most of you, I think, will be familiar with that. It's the hunching man, really, who's really trying to weigh it all up, work his, work his way through life. So we really wanted this course to be that kind of a course. So you didn't have to believe anything, you didn't have to buy into anything in order to come. Anybody could come, and it's an opportunity for you to consider and think about some of these things. So we started right from the beginning with Why Believe in God, and we've been working our way through, and here we are tonight in our second series, and number nine of the second series, and you'll see if you can... Can you read that all right? Uh, the, the number nine of that is What Happened on the Cross. I would say probably the cross of Jesus Christ is about as well known as any motif, certainly in Western culture and probably in the world. People wear them around their necks and all kinds of things. And yet when it actually comes to the mechanics of it, the dynamics of it, what actually happened there, uh, even some people that would call themselves pretty committed Christians might struggle a bit to explain it. And uh, I, I might well do the same tonight when we come to look at it, but I'll do the best that I can then. So in our Coming of Christ uh, module series, uh, we're looking at the question of the cross and what actually happened. And I'm going to start with a, a passage that is, I'm sure, familiar to most people, but I wanted to just set the, the tone for the evening by thinking about these words as we move into the subject tonight. So in Matthew chapter 27... And verse 27, I've taken it up halfway through, uh, mainly because it, it, there just isn't time to do everything. But verse 27 then, Then the, the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head. And they put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. They spat at him and they took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again. After they'd mocked him, they took off the robe and they put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they'd crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, that the words spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. They divided my garments among themselves and cast lots for my clothing. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. and We will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. 
For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he is calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge and he filled it with wine vinegar and he put it on a stick and he offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Well, that is a very familiar passage, I would think, to many of us. Read it on Easter Sunday and so on, so on, so on. What was happening here is the question that I'm asking myself as I read that again. The answer that I came to, which is not very specific, a lot more than we think. Uh, I, I, just, I just think of praying for this and preparing for it this afternoon. I've realised how cosmic this is. What, what a major event this is. I mean, it's interesting. This is, uh, this is what a guy called Flagan of Tralles said. He was uh, writing, he was a bit of a blogger uh, before they had blogging in the second century. And uh, this is what he said. In the fourth, he wrote this, this, um, this volume called The Olympiads, where he traced the account of all the different Olympiads. I think he went up to the 209th Olympiad. Every four years, you'll remember, in Greece, they held the, the Olympiads in the Roman Empire all those years ago. And he traced the stories of the Olympiads. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was a great eclipse of the sun. Listen to this. Greater than had ever been known before. For in the sixth hour, the day was changed into night and the stars were seen in the heavens. An earthquake occurred in Bithynia and overthrew a great part of Nicaea. Bithynia is somewhere in northern Turkey, so actually quite a way away from here, but the timing, you have to say, is, is, is pretty accurate. You may wonder what the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad was. Well, it was this year, the AD 33, as far as we can ascertain. Uh, this was the same event that was recorded by trialers of Olympia. And then, of course, Pilate, I'd never come across this until recently, wrote this letter. It's part of a letter that he wrote to the Roman Empire at the time. At the time that he was crucified, this is Jesus. He no doubt been asked to give some account of what he'd done. There was darkness all over the world. The sun being darkened at midday and the stars appearing, but in them there appeared no luster. It was kind of a dull gloom settled over the earth. The moon, as if turned to blood, failed in her light. So they could see the moon, so it was not an eclipse. Anyway, eclipses don't last for six hours, as we all know. 
And in that terror, dead men were seen that had risen as the Jews themselves testified. The fear of the earthquake remained from the sixth hour of preparation until the ninth hour, from 12 o'clock in the day until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. There are numbers of ancient writers that testify to these events happening. This was big. This was very big, what happened on the cross. This was not some poor prophet misunderstood that happened to die in a corner away from everywhere. This impacted on the Roman Empire. Caesar heard about this thing that was going on. This was massive. This was global. And of course, as we now know, it was even more global than they knew at the time. So what happened then? Well, I'm going to try and answer that tonight as best I can. But I wanted to ask two questions because it seemed to me these kind of jumped into my head and I thought they were relevant questions to ask and they're the sort of questions that people have asked me from time to time. The first one is how does this affect me? How can it be that somebody dying 2,000 years ago can actually impact on my life? What has that got to do with me? Jesus seems an awfully long time ago, an awfully long way away and far removed from modern Western civilization. So how does this affect me? I should try and give some sort of an answer. And, and how do you turn what looks like a defeat into a victory? I mean, the New Testament is in no doubts that what happened on the cross was not the prelude to the victory. You know, like when the resurrection, it was the victory. The victory actually happened there. When Jesus said, it is finished, it didn't mean I'm ended, it meant the whole thing has been done. I've accomplished it. History has changed on this day. So, how, But how did he do that? I mean, how do you win by dying? Okay. Uh, now I'm going to suggest a, a three-directional approach to this. If you take the cross and you look at the cross uh, facing downwards, I'm going to suggest that it had particular relevance to Satan. And, uh, and in fact, was the decisive victory. It actually broke the powers of darkness in the earth. Now, you might look out today and say they don't look very broken. Trust me, they are. Secondly, it also goes out sideways and provided the solution for the human race, the poor, battered human race that still looks battered because many men refuse to come to the one that actually has their healing and their deliverance and their hope and everything else. And then thirdly, it goes up to God and secures for us peace with God. So, I mean, that's a pretty simple way to look at it, and you probably all knew that anyway, but for any that are not quite sure, hopefully this will put it into some kind of form. So if somebody says to you, well, why did Jesus die on the cross? You could say, well, there you go, Satan, man, God. It deals with all three main players in the drama. And in fact, there is a verse which I, I found after I'd worked out the, the scheme, there's a, a verse in Corinthians that, that seems to me to say it all. It's a little bit wordy, um, but uh, listen to this. In, in 2 Corinthians 13 to 15, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. In other words, you were in a complete mess and God has brought you healing and hope and deliverance. Then he goes on, he forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with his regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. In other words, the indictment that we face has been cancelled. It's been dealt with. So he's first of all dealt healing to us, but he's dealt release from his own laws. He's paid the price 
the commitment that his own laws demanded, but then the third bit, uh, he's also disarmed the powers and the authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So the cross was the place where the victory was also won to break the hold of Satan that has sought from the beginning to hold the human race enslaved and ensnared. Okay? So three directions, we're going to look at them one by one. I'm taking a bit of a time on the first one, but then hopefully we'll go a bit quicker as we go along. So the first one then, uh, I'm going to start with the last one and make it the first one. Oh, I actually said it's the first one. Uh, victory over Satan. Uh, that's, that's not really a photo of Satan, but it, it, was a, it was a representation from the Passion of Christ. And I, I thought this, this guy that played Satan in The Passion of Christ uh, had a really snidey-looking, sneaky, underhanded, uh, kind of pale, pasty, unhealthy, halfway-to-dying kind of look about him. And I thought, that'll do. You know, rather than put some awful beast with horns, I thought a sort of a broken and sad man makes pretty good model for Satan. Okay, so victory over Satan. We're going to look at three things under that. First of all, our condition how the Bible sees us. Uh, and the Bible sees us as, well, I, I put the word, a pawn. Um, secondly, we're going to look at when Christ came into the world then to take on the enemy, what then happens. And his life is, a, is actually a, 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 a trail of conflict and so on as he goes through it. Thirdly, we're going to look at what actually happened at the cross. All of this comes together. So as Jesus comes into the world, there, is, there, are, there are two sides of the battle. The battle is... is facing one another, and into that, of course, comes the, the final victory of the cross. Okay, so the condition of man. Um, <coughs> first, I thought I'd better ask this question, who is, who is Satan, and what do we make of Satan? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot, but he does seem to indicate that he is a, a fallen angel, he is a being of incredible power, as beholds his angelic status. Uh, he was once beautiful, but has now become ugly, in his rebellion and turning away from God. He is an instinctive bully. He, he, his, his sense is to push people around and to, and to manipulate and to use them and to apply force upon them. Uh, but his greatest tool generally lies in deceitfulness and lies. And of course, Jesus once said that the, Satan was a, a, not he was a murderer, but he was also a liar and the father of lies. So the two major things we're told about Satan totally fit the character uh, that we're building here. So the condition of man then as a pawn. Well, we've been to the Garden of Eden a few times so far. Um, we'll pop here once more this evening, just briefly. Uh, but according to the Garden of Eden, we were originally created to rule. We had a position of very high status. We ruled over the created order. I mean, we, we have no idea now what we've lost and what must have been our original condition, but it seems to have been pretty high. And the Bible says that because of our disobedience, we lost our position. We lost our place. We were put under a curse. We were separated from God. Coming out from God's covering and protection and position left us to totally vulnerable. And the enemy that's ensnared us and duped us and fooled us into it, of course, has now taken over. It's like moved into our house and occupied it and, uh, and through generations. If you look at the history of the human race, it is gruesome. And people say, well, why is it? Why have we done that? Uh, the answer is because a, a bully has landed in our house and has been uh, abusing us 
down through generations and still seeks to take a hold of every single person by lying and deceitfulness. He is now in control of the world to all intents and purposes. Even now, I mean, you remember when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted and, uh, and Satan came to him and he said, all these I will give you, all the kingdoms of the world I will give you if you just bow down and worship it, for they are mine. And you would have thought if Jesus would have challenged that, that would have been the moment, but he doesn't challenge it. He simply accepts it. He says, you not tempt the Lord your God, but as far as Satan's ownership is concerned, he accepts the fact that Satan has some kind of control on the earth. God gave it to us and we lost it. It slipped through our fingers. By our disobedience and rebellion, we gave it to somebody else and now he's got it. And, uh, and of course, in, in John 14, Jesus says, the prince of this world is coming. He has no power over me, but the prince of this world is coming. So the, the Bible seems to be pretty clear that Satan has gained a position of ascendancy in the earth. He has snuck into God's world. He has undermined we, who were the weak link in the chain, if you like, and by so doing has taken over authority and ownership in the earth and has done a, a huge amount of damage and men often have little you know his greatest defense is to hide his, his very presence so that people don't even know he's here so we are like pawns being pushed around the evidence for that is everywhere i mean the, i mean you can get you can get the headline things like war and violence it's all over the world it has been for time immemorial there have been times of peace but again and again you start at the beginning of the 20th century it was to be the time when war would be finished when man would have come of age where no longer would we be troubled uh, by warfare and of course then come two world wars and so on drink and drugs and addiction to all kinds of chemicals these are well known i don't know mindless destruction I mean, who wants to break up a toilet of all things what do you want to do you know, and we often look out and we see things and think, why do people do that? I can't see any family conflict. I thought this was a good one. They're actually fighting over a packet of all brand. Why, why, why would you fight over a packet of all brand? <laughs> I didn't see that when I first got it, but I thought, you've got it. It, it goes right from the micro to the macro. Human beings find it really difficult to live at peace, in peace. Husbands and wives find it quite a challenge to live in peace. We're constantly getting each other, nagging each other, getting each other. What's wrong with us? Well, the Bible says we want to live in peace, but we can't. We want to be good. Uh, we want to have good marriages. We want to have a good life. I mean, you never find anybody that says, I really want a rotten life. Everybody would, everybody pretty much. That's a bit pathological, but everybody wants to live a good life, but somehow we are unable to do it. And Paul says in Romans 7, uh, 19, the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not. Why, why am I like this? Ask the question that men and women must have asked down through generations. We often think that we're free. You know, the number of young people think, I'm going to kick over the trade, I'm going to do what I like, I'm going to really live it however I want. You think you're being free, and then you find you've stuck yourself in another prison. Worse than the one you came out of. It's great, a great irony of human life that in all our yearning to be free, we end up increasingly ensnared and under dominion and under the prince of this world. So that, that's the biblical picture of it. We need somebody to break the chains and set us free. All of us do. You know, some of us, some of us make a, a better job than others. Some of us don't lie around in the road getting drunk all the time. But we're just as much enslaved and bound as everybody else. We, all of us, unless 
Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. That is the only, as far as I know, that is the only way that a man can be free, really, and that's what he came for. Okay, so that's the condition of man, a pawn, the coming of Christ then. Jesus comes into the world. That, that's just an artist's impression of Jesus in the wilderness. I'm not sure if I like it, but you can see uh, that uh, Satan there looks like a, a wheezing up old man now, not a pasty-faced, evil-looking person, but a wheezing old man. Um, and uh, if we look at the, the life of Jesus in terms of conflict, you find that it goes, it goes all the way through, everywhere from the beginning to the end. I mean, we talk about the, the, uh, the wilderness, the temptation. Immediately he was baptised, he went out into the wilderness and the, and the devil came to him and whispered in his ear and tried to subvert him, to get him to go another way, to not do the Father's will, to not obey what God had said. But he didn't start there. He goes back to Bethlehem. And you remember that it, from the very beginning, Satan was trying to wipe him out, stop him even existing and living. So he obviously goes for strategic points where he can try and do it. The Jewish leaders were constantly carping and against Jesus and trying to stop him. The people of Nazareth, when he got there, nearly threw him off a cliff because they didn't like him. There is, there is an enemy out there and when Jesus came into the world to do battle, he knew what, this, what was happening and he sought to stop it and prevent it. Even Jesus' own family were trying to say, come home, you know, stop all this stuff. Come home again, your carpenter shop and be a proper bloke and do what you're supposed to be doing and not that. Simon Peter, when, you remember when, when Jesus said that he was going to suffer and die, Simon said, it's not going to happen to you, Lord. And Jesus turned on him and said, get behind me, Satan. And I can only imagine that he said that because in, that was the kind of word that had been whispered to him along, you know, you, maybe there's another way, maybe I don't have to do this after all. And then, and then, Peter says it, and that just, that does it. So even in his closest disciples, there is a, a sense of the enemy that is there. And of course, ultimately, Judas, uh, who comes in at the last minute and, uh, and does the deed. So conflict all the way through. But, um, I like that picture. Uh, not everybody will, you might not like it. It might be a bit of a, th this is Satan looking like a bit of a, I, I couldn't resist putting in a bit of a red Satan somewhere. Um, uh, there you go. Uh, he's got the fires all burning around him already. Uh, but he didn't get it all his own way. And, you know, as we go through the ministry of Jesus, we find that Jesus was actually assailing Satan, attacking him. I mean, there's a, a verse in, in Mark 3, 22 to 27, where, <clears throat> where Jesus says that he is like a strong man that has come into the world. To, uh, sorry, he's like he's come into the house of a strong man to bind him so that he can plunder his house. And, and people often get a bit confused about that. Um, but, uh, but what he's saying is that until, until he, you know, because he was casting out demons, he was setting people free from Satan's thing. And he said to, say, to, to the people, I couldn't do this unless I'd already bound the strong man. That's what I came into the world to do. So it's not just he's being attacked, he is himself on the assault. He is uh, uh, delivering people uh, from demons again and again. He's healing the sick, healing people that are oppressed. The, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said. I, the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and deliverance to the captives and, the, and receiving of sight to the blind and so on to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So he didn't come here to, into the world to be kicked around. He came into the world to take on the enemy as only he could. There was nobody else that could do it. No other man that could do it, put it that way. 
I mean, that's why he became a man, so that on our behalf he could, do the, he could do the battle and do the deed and set us free. And by confronting the religious leaders. You listen to some of the things that Jesus said to the relig- religious leaders there. If you've got a pen and you want to put that down, uh, Matthew 23, verse 33, has got some pretty outspoken stuff that he said as he uh, came against them. And all of this then gathers and gathers and gathers and gathers so that by the time we get to the the events of the cross and the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is in the garden and his disciples are sleeping and he's sweating drops of blood as he's he's facing the the final conflict, the final onslaught that is coming uh, on the cross. So So the cross needs to be seen in some senses as a as a climax of a whole lifetime of coming into the world to do battle, to overcome the enemy, to break his power so that we might be free. So victory over Satan, I'll go just recap a bit. Uh, the final thing then, the crisis of the cross, the victory that Jesus won on the cross. Uh, according to 1 John 3.8, it says, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. He disarmed the powers of darkness. In that Colossians 2 passage, verse 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So the Bible is in no doubt about it that the cross was the victory. It was on the cross that he beat Satan. And we're going to have to say, well, how did you do that? He drew it out into the open and he made a public spectacle of him. He says it was one of the ways. I, I remember reading somewhere that, that in a sense, Satan had been like a kind of godfather figure. He'd been in, you know, inspiring and pushing and encouraging and making people rebel and do wrong and so on. But he'd somehow always managed to stay on the right side of things. You know what I mean? It, it was, he was as guilty as anybody, but he'd never actually done the deed. I, I thought that was a really interesting thought. That explained how he comes before God in the book of Job and you know, runs to and fro on the earth and so on and so on and seems to have freedom to do that. As if he's, you know, because you say, well, why didn't God deal with Satan? And uh, the, the answer may be that up to that point, he had not, he had not yet brought himself under condemnation. But when, he, when Jesus drew him out into the open and he took him upon the cross, at that point he'd gone too far. He'd taken one that he could not take. He'd taken a life that he did, you know, all other lives were forfeit. They were his anyway. This one wasn't. He should not have taken this life. So as we'll see in a moment, he was not actually trying to make Jesus die. He was trying to make Jesus disobey. He triumphed over them through the cross, so says the Bible. So how then did he win? How do you win by dying? That's the question. Well, you remember what actually uh, sunk our boat, if I could put it that way in the first place, was our disobedience. It was Adam's disobedience that brought God's wrath and judgment and separation and ultimately death. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Satan did not want to try and get um, uh, did not want to try and get um, uh, Jesus to, uh, disobe- to, to come down from the cross. He, he, he wanted him to, sorry, he wanted him to come down from the cross. He wanted him to dis- disobey God. He wasn't trying to kill him. That's it, got my, head, got my head straight there. He wanted him to disobey God, and Jesus, we're told, was obedient un- even unto death. So that 
whatever was done to him, he didn't. He, he performed the ultimate test of obedience to God. And in doing that, of course, he passed the test. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Where all men have failed, Jesus succeeded. He became the first man ever to succeed and overcome and win. And, uh, and therefore, Satan's power was not able to hold him. So the, the resurrection was the ultimate and inevitable consequence of his death. He couldn't, death couldn't hold him uh, because he'd overcome and conquered and have been obedient unto death. So that's how you win, by dying. So he is now risen. He is the rightful head of the human race. He is the second Adam. That's why the Bible calls him. He's actually founded a new people, a new race, a new family. Satan is the prince of this world, but Jesus is the king. That's what the Bible says. Satan has, was lured into a fight that he could not win. And his doom is sealed. I mean, there is a, in, in the, one of the best representations of that is in that, that film, The Passion, where, Satan, where Jesus gives up his spirit and dies, and there is a great howl cries up, goes up from Satan. A great howl that goes up from hell where Satan realizes what he's done. <laughs> Essentially, he's blown it. And uh, his own, not only has Jesus beaten him, but he is now, uh, he is now condemned. He, is, he has no future. He is, his time is limited. If we choose to follow Jesus, then we enter into his kingdom, we enter into his family, we become uh, children of the second Adam. We become children of the family of God, and as such, we are now set free. Uh, the old bondage that no longer happens to us uh, as, as it was before. Okay, so that's three directions. I've taken a long time on that, but to me that was pretty crucial, really, to get the dynamics of that, how that happened. What about healing for man? Well, you remember that passage in Colossians, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. That is his recipe for us to be totally and ultimately and completely healed. We may have a few bumps and bruises along the way, but our destiny is to be completely whole. So we're going to look at that uh, in a moment. So how does that work then? How does healing come? Well, if we backtrack a little bit to what we said previous week, our, our fundamental trouble as a result of what happened in the garden and as what happens in the life of every person is that we are self-centered. We, we, the, my life revolves around me. I may include other people from time to time, but generally it revolves around me or my family or my people that I immediately love and so on and so on. I find it quite hard to break out of that in the natural person. And every person is like that. And we're born like that. Babies are self-centered, as we've already said. I mean, at one level, we take it for granted because we're all like it. But it is, according to the Bible, this is the source of all our troubles. It is what it is sin. It is the definition of what sin is. And, uh, and all the sins that people do generally come out of that kind of root. How do you get rid of that self-center? I mean, it's very stubborn. You, I mean, probably those that are Christians say, yeah, it is very stubborn. The only, the only um, acid that can melt self-centeredness is love. And we, we see this. We see this in, in normal human relationships. You can see people that fall in love and they become different people. They, they become nicer. Uh, they become unself. You know, we, our problem is sustaining it. You know, we're not 
good at sustaining it, but you can see it in the moment. You see it with parents and their children who can do noble and sacrificial things. It kind of breaks us out of the mould of our self-centred cycle if we love another person. Now, I mean, if that happens just in ordinary human relationships, how much more does that happen when we come to, to Jesus? And I, I'm just reading these verses here earlier in the day in, in John 19, and Pilate took Jesus, had him flogged, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and they clothed him in a purple robe, and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail the King, and they struck him in the face. And I, I, was, I was thinking to myself, I mean, this is actually the king of the universe. This is the co-creator of the earth. And they dressed him in a, ro in a purple robe and they made a joke of him and they put a crowd of thorns on his head and they said, Hail King of the Jews, and what are they doing? Do they not know? Have they no comprehension that when God visited our planet, we didn't treat him very well? Classic, really, isn't it? It's a bit like human beings uh, all around. But I mean, if I can remember the time in my life when that dawned upon my soul... And I knew that I loved him more than anything. And I have to say, and I, I'm, there'll be others here, I can see you nodding there. I have to say, that has been the dominant love of my life. Out of which all other relationships, my relationship with my wife and my children, my family, my friends, my neighbours, fellow believers, all of, but it all comes out of that. That is the fundamental. That is, that is the love that, that settled upon my soul when I realised what he'd done, what he'd paid, who he was, what manner of man this is that came into the world and took my place. Hail, King of the Jews, they said, and they struck him on the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find, find no basis for a charge against him. And Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, here is the man. I wonder how he said that. I don't know. I mean, in, in the, the old, it says, Ecce Homo, doesn't it? It says, behold the man, behold the man. Look at him. Look at him. What are you doing? I, you've got, I just have a feeling that, that Pilate can't, somehow saw it, somehow knew it. He didn't have the moral courage to, take it, to do anything about it, but somehow in that moment he knew that standing before him was incarnate love, the love of all loves, the one that loved him enough to die for him. He knew it. And he, and he said, look at him. <laughs> can't, you, can't you see what manner of man this is? So, and, and for me, it hasn't made me a totally unselfish man. I have to say that. My wife would, would probably put her hand up and say, let me say a bit at this moment. Uh, but I have to also say I'm considerably less selfish than I would have been. And I'm praying that in the coming years I'm going to even grow less selfish than that. And that slowly and gradually my life will be changed. But the thing is I've made a decision and I put my life in his hands and so I believe that he will bring about the changes within me that I need to happen. In the cross, this is how it works. In the cross, God says loud and clear, I love you. If you're in any doubt about this, I mean, people still say, well, what if God, why, why does God let all these things happen? If God was loving, he wouldn't do that. God says, I, I've sent, I sent my son for you. If in the cross, God declares his love and when the Holy Spirit takes that and speaks it into my heart, it touches me. 
and it starts to melt me and it begins to change me and it puts within me a heart and a desire and say, I don't want to be the way that I am. I want to be a different kind of a man to the way that I am. The self-centeredness that is a part of my fundamental nature is assailed at its roots and reverses the downward spiral uh, that is a part of the life that I lived. What kind of life would I have lived had I not put my hand in the Lord's hand uh, 60 plus years ago. I've no idea, but I would not have been the man that I now am. And I can move towards health. God's plan for me is health. Okay, I know that we'll, you know, we'll, we're going to die. And uh, we're going to get sicknesses. But my, but, but my move is towards health. Inside, I'm getting healthier and younger and stronger. My, my, my outward body is crumbling a bit. But inside, I'm not. And I believe it, that all things are working together for good with those that love Christ. And I want to follow him. I will follow him until we finally go home. And I'm praying that I'm going to go home rejoicing. So as I follow him, I come under his protection and I'm slowly being healed. That is what I'm putting to you. That is the premise that I'm putting to you. And it's all done through the cross. Through the cross. It is the foolishness of God the cross, that it can actually transform. We still go through the physical process of dying, we said that, but as the Bible says, it's lost its power to hurt us anymore. Death, where is your sting? I, I, I read in one guy, a, a skydiver, that, I mean, the plane crashed that he was in, he was skydiving before he had a chance to jump out. And I mean, he was just being interviewed on, on YouTube or something like that, and, uh, and I mean, he, he really got burnt badly. I mean, he broke pretty well every bone in his body and his you know, his, his internal organs were all scrambled up and he was really at death's door. And in the midst of that, he met with Jesus. And, uh, and I mean, they, they were interviewing him and I mean, he was am amazing, really. I mean, he'd still got a hand that was all messed up and no fingers on it and things like that. You could tell that he'd been through an accident. His face had all been scarred with burning. And, but, but he said, actually, you should see me, you should see me when it happened. Uh, and uh, this man had turned for a lump of meat uh, into a human being again, and he looks you straight in the eye. He'd lost, he's lost his eyes and he got them back. And he said, God seems to be putting things back together in me. But, the, but, the, but he said, I actually, no, I'm not worried. Because even if I die, yet shall I live. That's it. Okay, so three directions we said. I'm coming to the last one now. Uh, and that one's peace with God. As we said at the beginning, Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, but that was not just them. They, they precipitated it by their disobedience, but of course you could remember uh, that in fact uh, it was God that, that, that asked them to go out of the Garden. It was not, you know, they didn't volunteer to go. God ejected them uh, from the Garden, from his presence. He placed angels to stand guard over it so they couldn't get back. So he was pretty determined uh, that they wouldn't get back. So you may say, well, okay, Satan has, Satan's power has been broken. Um, the human race has been healed. But what about God? I mean, God is still offended by us. Um, God, what, what does God do? God, we're, not, we're not holy. Even, even though I'm in the process of being made holy, I'm still far from holy. What is God going to do? I mean, if you look up Exodus... Uh, and chapter 33, uh, there's a passage where, where Moses, um, uh, there you go, Moses couldn't even look upon God's face. Verse 17 of uh, chapter 33, he says, And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you ask. 
um, because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. So this is a, this is a favoured man. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. And then you remember the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand. You will see that my back, but my face cannot be seen. I mean, that, you know, what, that seems to say that there is, a, there's something, there's, there is a gulf that has been made. There is an incompatibility. We can't even look upon God's face according to the Bible. We'd be, we'd be burned and sizzled in his presence. So what, what do you do about that? Well, that's the, that's the number three. God's righteousness, in other words, demands that we pay, demands ex ejection, exclusion, apart from. You cannot come into my presence, but his love longs to gather us up and bring us in. That's why when people say, well, you know, there's loads of ways to get to God. <laughs> there are no way loads of ways to get to God. There is, I am the way, the truth and the life. No, you see what I mean? There is nobody else that could do this. Because he's not simply provided healing for men to bring about a change in our hearts, not just broken the power of the enemy, he's actually opened a way into the very presence of God. The Old Testament gives a, gives a real outline of this uh, as you go through it. That, that there is a, a, a picture of the tabernacle in the wilderness. I mean, it's not an actual photograph, at least as far as I know it isn't, but you never know. But you find through the, through the whole Old Testament there is an elaborate sacrificial system that is established by God for the people so that they can have some means of coming into God's presence. It's limited, it's certainly not adequate, and the, the New Testament um, so certainly picks that up. The tabernacle itself was just like the temple. There was an inner cube that was the Holy of Holies that was in the, the second half of that tent. And the inner cube of the Holy of Holies was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. That was the place where God's presence was. That was the place where nobody could go. The lady couldn't even go and dust in there, you know, when it was getting dirty. The high priest couldn't go there apart from once a year and then he had to go through elaborate procedures to be cleansed before he could get into the presence of God or he might be struck down dead in the presence of God. There was a, there was a, a, a layer outside of the Holy of Holies. There was the holy place where only the priests could go and only when they were specified. Then there was another circle around that. So there were these elaborate circles around and God was in the middle of it and unreachable. He was there among his people because he wanted to be but they couldn't get near him. That was the problem. That was the dilemma. And in Hebrews 9, 22, it says, in the fact the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Everything, all the vessels and the utensils, everything. Everything be cleansed by blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So the Old Testament laid down the parameters. There is only one way that we could come into the presence of God. It was by blood sacrifice. And Jerusalem ran with blood, especially in the Passover and times like that. But the book of Hebrews points out that for all that, it's never enough. Uh, in Hebrews 10, 1 to 2, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. 
For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to words. We can't do it. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. The fact that it was repeated endlessly again and again and again, they kept going through it, is an indication that actually it was, you know what I mean, it was, it was, it was never enough. It was never adequate. Um, subjectively, it says it didn't actually cure guilt. They would no longer have felt guilty for their sins if, if once doing it. If offering a, a goat or a bull or a lamb for your sins could do it, they'd have done it, but it didn't. They did it, but it was only temporary. Then they had to do it again. It was never enough. Objectively, uh, an animal is never, is never enough for a man. Verse 3, For those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They can't do it. It was, it, was God's, it was God's temporary solution. It was God's demonstration. It was God's illustration. It was God's real reminder to us of what had happened to us as a result of our sin and our disobedience and our separation from him. It was a, a reminder to us of the seriousness of our condition and the only way uh, that, we could, that we could be healed if a suitable sacrifice could be found. And the Bible says there was one that was found. The constant um, repetition, however, in verse, I mean, this, this verse here in verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never wake, take away sins. But then, uh, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That is the, that is the, that's what he's getting to. The final answer, God sent his own son. God provided his own lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, it says in the early chapters of John, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And he was an adequate substitute. By that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. God looked at all the sin and all the rottenness and all the disobedience and all the terrible things that every human being had ever done since the beginning of the world on one side and then on the other he put his son and it pays. It pays the price. It is one sacrifice that is enough for everybody. Unrepeatable. And we've already read verse 12. This priest had offered for all time one sacrifice. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Wow, that is good news. I mean, to me, there is, there is amazing genius in God, God's plan for the cross. The whole total thing is the complete answer to the entire dilemma of the human race. And I could weep sometimes when I look about human beings who are struggle and turmoil and difficulties all over the world uh, because they are not set free or brought home or healed. I, I did mention last week, and for some this is controversial, it's not controversial to me, uh, I mentioned that uh, the archaeologists have actually discovered what they believe to be the Ark of the Covenant I mean, it's, it's, it's not hitting the headlines. If it were to hit the headlines, there'd probably be a war in the Middle East 
sooner than there will be anyway. But they believe and they found it right deep down in a, in a cave underneath the place where Jesus was actually crucified, um, the Ark of the Covenant, in a, in a, in a stone sarcophagus. And, uh, and you'll remember that the, the Bible says at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two and the earth shook and the rock split. It's believed that, that almost certainly that earthquake was not, just for, it was not just for show. It was not just the whole of the created order uh, complaining at what had happened, but it actually was uh, affecting the rocks uh, in the Holy Land itself. And they found the, the sockets where the cross holes were. They found the dark stuff. They actually stuck a steel rule up from underneath, right the way up. It's about 20 foot up, the crack in the rock, and the blood has trickled down through that and down onto the... Ark of the Covenant underneath the mercy seat of God. Well, I, I believe that. Not, not everybody believes that. That's okay. Um, but uh, one of the church, it says one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water in John 19, 34. And that poured down a copious flow from the side of the Lord of blood and water that ran down through the rocks and uh, laid on the mercy seat and offered the final sacrifice now you may say, well, why would God do that? I, I would say, well, why would God not do that? <laughs> why would God? I mean, the Ark of the Covenant, as you know, disappeared about 500, over 500 BC. And why did it disappear? Did God lose it? Did he have no purpose for it anymore? Did it just fade out of history as though it were never important? Read what the Bible says about the Ark of the Covenant. It's of immense importance, huge significance. It signifies the presence of God among his people. People died if they touched the Ark of the Covenant when they shouldn't have done. So God didn't lose it. God knows exactly where it is. And he hid it underground so that at the time when the rocks rent, the blood would flow and fall upon the mercy seat and provide atonement for the sins of the world once and for all, not for every year, like the high priest, but once and for all, the great high priest that came on our behalf offered his blood. Nearly finished. Uh, two questions then that I started with, and I should just recap on them, and hope, hopefully you've got the sort of gist of it as we've gone along. How does this affect me? Uh, I thought that was a good picture, because John Don, it was said, that no man is an island. And I think we'll all be aware of that more and more in, in these days that we live. I mean, we all inherit from our parents. We've got their DNA. We've got characteristics. In fact, I think I'm getting more like my dad as the years go by, actually. But there you go. Uh, he was a good man, so bless him. I'm not unhappy about that. Um, but you often find that, you know, how often, you know, a lady will say, I think I'm getting more like my mother, you know, shock, horror and fear. Uh, I mean, it is weird the way these little transmitters carry through. Maybe they're to just remind us that we are not alone. We think we're alone, we think we make decisions, but we are not alone. We are connected to a great, uh, a great company and it goes all the way back. I mean, how far back does my family go? Well, the Bible says we actually all go back to Adam. He is the father the feudal father of the whole family, and we've all inherited from Adam. We inherited his sin, we inherited his condition, and we've lived in that. We've become our own Adam, but nonetheless we've inherited from him. Christ has now come into the world and has become the second Adam. That is very dramatic. That is dramatically different, as we've already been saying. He has now started a new line, but this is a voluntary family. This is a family that you can opt into. It's not a family that you have no say in. You can choose to become a follower of Jesus. You can be adopted into his family and become his son or his daughter. If I choose to be adopted into the family of Jesus, all the credits of that family become mine. 
including his victory over Satan, his future and destiny and everything else. So how do you win or how did Jesus win by dying? Last one. When he said it is finished, how did he do that? And uh, why? Well, I'm, hopefully I've sort of touched on that, but just to reinforce it, to finally try and make sure that I answered this question as best I could. By his death, Satan's control was broken. We've already said it was crucial that he die in order to draw the enemy into the wrong and to secure his ultimate condemnation before God. The enemy is a defeated force. A cry has gone up from hell and hell knows that its days are numbered. The Bible says in Revelation that the, the enemy um, runs around like a roaring lion knowing that his days are numbered. So Satan's control was broken by Jesus' death. By Jesus' death, we see how much God loves us. It melts our hearts and brings about moral changes. Primarily, it brings about a desire to repent and to change and to be filled with the Spirit and to start a new life. It's, we're so generally selfish, it's, it's, it's difficult to know how we would do that apart from the love of Jesus that, that ministered to us by the Holy Spirit. So we see how much God loves us. Thirdly, um, we see we, uh, he, by his death, a perfect sacrifice is offered so that the Lamb of God sheds his blood upon the cross and, uh, and is offered on our behalf so that in him we now live. Okay. We pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent your Son into the world. And the Bible says that you, that you were in Christ reconciling the world to yourself. So this was very much part of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. You were all involved with us. You all paid the price. You all bore the pain. So we thank you, Lord, that you were willing to bear that kind of pain in order that we might be saved and redeemed comprehensively and assured of a future and a hope and a destiny. So we bless you for all that you've done for us in Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that if there's any one of us here tonight that has not yet understood that or not yet come to terms with that, we pray that you'd continue to speak to us so that it would come clear, so that we ourselves might be adopted into your family, maybe even this night, because we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. That, that really was the purpose of the Way Up course, that we could, I mean, if we were, if we were running it in a home or something like that, we'd, we'd have an, op an open sharing time. Uh, but because we're filming it, we, you know, we're running under a certain constraint for that to do something for the future. But we'll, I'll run through them as best I can. Uh, right, Satan was defeated at the cross, but 2,000 years on, nobody seems to have told him. <laughs> Fair point. We see more and more people murdered and maimed, more brokenness and mental illness. When is he going to realise? Well, I say that's a very good question. I think the answer is... Um, we've actually come into this time in our culture at the end of a, a fairly progressive Christian period. There have been numbers of revivals in this land particularly through the uh, 18th, 19th century, the Wesleyan revival, uh, the Evangelical revival, the Pentecostal revival, all of those have had a massive impact on the inheritance that we had. 
what we have witnessed is the frittering away of that inheritance. And so the earth is reverting to be much more what it's tended to be down through history. But always, it seems to me, there is ebb and flow. It, it, Satan constantly tries to reassert himself, to take back the territory, to try and uh, do as much damage as he can. And if he can find enough people to cooperate with him, <laughs> um, he can get far, even now, even in this period. He only has so much time, however, to do that. And the Bible indicates, I mean, in, in, in the book of Revelation 12, 12, right in the middle of it, it says, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell on the earth, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you, and he is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. So sometimes a greater intensity of spiritual opposition is precisely because the time is getting shorter. I certainly think that the darkness will grow deeper before the dawn. And, and the Bible actually says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You know, even some of the elect, those that are chosen, could be led astray if they're not careful. So we, we do need to be watchful, we need to wage warfare, we need to um, put on the whole armour, we need to stand against the enemy, but certainly the, 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 the culture that we've grown up in, which was fundamentally affected by the Christian gospel, um, has been to very watered down now and is now in quite serious rebellion. So all the kind of stuff that comes as a result of that um, is, I'm afraid, the result. And if you look at Romans chapter 1, it talks about a society that is in that kind of rebellion and a lot of the marks of that are very similar to what we're seeing now in our own society. So we need to pray for our land, even as we pray for many lands, but uh, certainly this land is beloved to many of us to pray for it, that God would still have mercy on us and that the enemy would still be held back uh, even when the tide... And that, uh, as far as our bit is concerned, we stand and hold the ground. Uh, I mean, I, I can't really speak for England, but I can speak for Lydney um, in a little way. Uh, so we seek to stand for, for Lydney and defeat the power of the enemy where we can around us. Okay, best I can do on that. Um, next one, Jesus paid our price, but not all Jews have realised yet. Why don't they still follow the old laws and including the blood sacrifice? Well, that's interesting. I'd have to talk to a Jew really to find out. I mean, they, many of them do follow the old laws. I mean, the, the old Hasidic Jews and the strict Jews um, still do. Um, but they're not, they're, they can't follow all, you know, they, they observe the, the, um, uh, the various festivals, the tabernacles, the, you know, all the different festivals they have, but they don't have a place of sacrifice. Um, uh, so the sacrifices are not, as far as I know, they're not open to them. You know, even when they do their, um, uh, what's the name of the sacrifice, uh, the Exodus sacrifice? Passover. Gone completely out of my mind. It, you know, in the Passover sacrifice, I think they have a, they have a Passover, the Seder meal, you know, and they have the, the, the unleavened bread, etc. Et as far as I know, they don't offer a sacrifice. Am I right there? Or, uh, so I think they believe they haven't got a place or an altar where they can do that, which is why many Jews want the temple to rebuild so that they can restore that uh, again. But um, uh, So they're in a, they are themselves, I think, in an in-between place. They're not able to fully express the faith of the Old Testament, and that is a problem for them. 
Would you say that the idea of Satan versus God is just another deceit? That's an interesting question. As God is infinitely more powerful than Satan. That is true. Um, but of course, what, what we, we have done by entering into the, um, uh, into the, the, the whole uh, uh, conflict is that we, we have, um, to some extent, tied God's hands. I mean, if God was simply just dealing with Satan, he'd just go flop. You know what I mean? No contest. Uh, but Satan is very cunning and has used uh, God's beloved. God's used, he's used the human race that God loves in order to stay God's hand and to seek to do as much damage as he can, uh, as of course he did with Jesus before that. Um, so it, I, I would think that there, you know, the whole, the whole scenario really... Um, uh, what was I saying? Yeah, so God, I mean, God is, is weakened, in a sense, by his love for us. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay. Um, given what he said about uh, himself, why do so many identify him as being a good bloke and a nice guy? It confuses me. Well, I don't know. I find that difficult too. Um, I mean, we got that uh, last week with Billy Connolly, who said, I believe that Jesus is a nice man, but I don't really believe he's the son of God. Um, and as we said, reading C.S. Lewis's take on it, uh, you know, the things that he said were so extraordinary and so extreme, it's either got to be God saying them or he's a maniac. You know, there isn't, there isn't a halfway house, really, between those two. But people believe what they want to believe, and human beings are very open to being deceived. We all know that, you know, in our, in our lives generally. Well, I've got another one on the other side. Oh, more questions. For 2,000 years we prayed in Jesus' name and we have evidence of prayers being answered. Have you ever... Oh, I think I did that one. Yeah, I did that one last week. Well, I'll answer it because if those of you weren't here... Uh, have you ever known a prayer to be answered in any other name? And I think the answer I said was no. I'm, that, I'm not saying that hasn't happened, but I don't know of that happening. What is so special about the face of God that makes it lethal rather than the back of God? That's an interesting question. Trust my grandson to ask that one. He's often wondered that, to ask the questions that nobody else answers. Why could Moses not look at God's face? I, I mean, I, the only answer that I can, can come to is that the, the, the sheer radiance of God's personality uh, is in his eyes. I mean, the Bible says that the eyes are the windows of the soul. So if you see a person's eyes, I mean, it's very interesting, actually, you find this often. If, if I, I can remember when we ran a youth club in my early days, we had a lot of, uh, of street lads there, and fights could break out in that youth club because somebody looked at somebody. And I know what happened, their eyes caught one another. And if you catch the eye of another's person, momentarily you're soul to soul. And to be soul to soul with a person either means you're going to hit them or you're going to love them. We think about it. So generally in our conversation, our eyes dot around. We don't normally fix on another person's eyes. Uh, not generally, you'll all be really careful now when you go away from here. We generally don't, don't look into another person's soul because it feels like intrusion, unless we've got some sort of problems or issues that cause us to it. But normally we don't do that. So to look into God's eyes, what kind of significance does that have? I, I think it would have killed him. Um, and therefore, to that extent, I mean, I'm, I'm ad-libbing. Uh, I think uh, the greatest, God's greatest uh, power and presence 
would have communicated through his face. And he said to Moses, you can't look at my face, you wouldn't live if you looked at my... You can't look in my soul. Which is understandable, isn't it? I can, I can believe that. Um, if God is all-powerful, then why doesn't he just destroy Satan uh, and forgive all? I think we had this question last week as well, interestingly enough. I mean, the answer is quite simply that Satan has inveigled himself around uh, millions upon millions of men and women that God loves, and God is trying to save as many as he can. And I think uh, Doreen pointed out um, the weeds in the field. You remember that Jesus told a parable of the weeds in the the weeds in the field that wrap themselves around all the plants and the workers in the field so should we go out and dig up the weeds? The master of the field says, no, don't dig up the plants yet. Uh, leave it until the harvest time. Then we'll take it all out together and then we'll separate the one from the other. And that, that is God's plan. So we have to stay with the, with the bad stuff all interwoven with the good stuff. And if God were to try and pull Satan out of it, he would, he would cause so much damage and havoc in people's lives and in the fabric of the world by being pulled out of it, uh, that it would, it would do the very terrible thing that everybody would not want God to do. But the book of Revelation says what is going to happen at the end when God finally pulls the enemy out and deals with him. When he will run upon the earth with greater and greater intensity, knowing that his time is nearly done. And the earth itself will complain and uh, come under pressure in those days. If the only way to God is through the death of Jesus on the cross, what about those who have never heard that message? Um, <clears throat> Will they then get to heaven? Well, that's a good question. That actually is often a question that is asked by people. What happens to people that have never heard? Uh, you have to say at one level that God knows that. That to, that to some extent, everybody has some revelation. It says in Romans 1 that men, men know in their hearts uh, about God because of what's been created around him. And so there may well be those that will know and when they finally com come face to face with the Lord, they will, um, they will be garroted through because God knows the heart of a man. Uh, there won't be any doubt about it. I don't think there'll be anybody that he won't be sure about because God reads the hearts of men and women. So there will be the sorting out and it will be according to the purposes of God and according to whether a person ultimately receives, receives Jesus. And so I would, some way God will know that. Um, and uh, whether... I, no, I won't go down that road. Uh, more than that, I don't know. But that I believe uh, God will make a right decision. There will be nobody that will not go to heaven that should do and nobody that will go to heaven that shouldn't do. And it, the old testament, what of the God of this world do that which is right? Yes. Yes, won't, won't the God of all the earth do right? Yes, that's right. That's another good verse. Thank you, Doreen. She, you keep giving me a, a little extra verse. I just need it. Uh, yeah, the, won't the God of all the earth do right? And I think, does Paul ask that question? Oh, it comes in the Old Testament. Well, they. <laughs> shows how much, shows how much I know. But that's your homework. Go away and find out where that passage is. But shall not all the, the God of all the earth do right? That, that, that's a pretty good way to end it. So yes, but I wouldn't rely on that. I, I would still say, you know, get to know Jesus. That is, you know, and because uh, you never know, do you? Unless you've actually come face to face with Jesus and said, yes, and I repent, and, uh, and your heart melted and become a follower of Jesus, you never quite know 
whether you're just kidding yourself and, you know, thinking I'll get by. An awful lot of people think that they will get by. But, I mean, you, can't, you have to say, the Bible says, there's no other name given under heaven whereby you may be saved. So I would, you know, you've got to hold on to that and be certain on that. But, but God must do something with people according to what they know and what they've received and judge them accordingly. Great, well, thank you for that one. That's a good one to end up with. <laughs> Bless you. Let's just pray for one another and then we'll go on our way. Heavenly Father, thank you for being with us and thank you for your word. Thank you that it's rich and we're ever learning from it and we pray that you'd help us to continue to go on learning and growing in the coming days. And we pray that you continue with us on this course. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.